This is Van Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air on our Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube channels. We're here tonight with uh, a competitive intelligence expert, Robbie Phoenix. And uh, thank you for being on the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. <laughs> now, we do want to mention we are a featured podcast on the Newsly um, channel, which is a podcast channel on Android and uh, iOS. And so if you check out coupon code GHOST, you get one month free, free premium subscription so you can stop scrolling, start listening. This episode will be on Newsly later tonight. And uh, thank you again for being on the show. It's all my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is a competitive intelligence expert? Maybe you can tell the audience, what does that actually mean? Sure. And thank you for asking. It, it's basically teaching companies how to win. So I have an illustrious background in being a top salesperson nationwide and also a top 10% ranked national engineer in a Fortune 100, happened to be Verizon, where I started my career. And if you can imagine that there's a lot of opportunity for synergy between sales, engineering, and ultimately marketing, competitive intelligence experts bring those worlds together for a beautiful symphony of winning against their competition. That's what we do. That's a cool thing. I think a lot of creative people say, oh, I'm a podcaster, I'm a musician, I'm a producer. I actually work as a day job as a software designer. So, oh, um, so cool. you know, being in electronic music, I kind of have my my head in IT. I've got my Moogs and my synths all around me. But I got into podcasting back in 2016. And I just did it because I liked it. And now it's actually become more of a side gig where, it's, you know, podcasting is like the big thing. Um, and so it's actually found a way for a lot of influencers, a lot of salespeople, a lot of other people are using it to get into markets. And, you know, initially I just did it because I was a, I was approached by a radio DJ to talk about my music. And I liked it so much that I started actually interviewing bands. And that's wow. how I started back in 2016. We were about 860 episodes and we branched out to be more expansive than what we originally do, but we still interview musicians to beyond that to life coaches mentors people like yourself um and people told us oh you shouldn't be so open but we found you know we've been doing it since 2016 so we's like okay we have a method to our madness <laughs> clearly and you know it feels like sometimes providence has a hand and i'll just say it this way for all in your audience that may believe or may not but i'll tell you what i would go toe-to-toe -to -toe any day and go on your show because where my hood was in 23 years of my career was in the corporate hood. And sometimes they got it, right? Sometimes they understand that creative can in fact be your competitive advantage if you leverage it authentically. And that's mm. the secret in my success in coaching two Fortune 100 companies to $254 million of direct contribution was, I wasn't just sitting at my desk waiting for opportunity, number one, I took initiative. Number two, I learned from everyone around me super humbly. And number three, it's exactly people like yourself that get it. That It's not just an art and a science. It's both and it's passion all in between. So thank you for having me again. <laughs> well, I do see your guitars, you know, and behind me, I have my Moogs and my modular synths. So we're kind of in the same zone. So like you transitioned effectively from corporate Fortune 100 companies into the music industry from this competitive advantage um, type of uh, mindset. And I think it's like a lot of musicians, we always forget about marketing. Cause you know, I'm, I get into my Moog, I get in my, in my Juno, I get into my modular synthesis and I say, oh, I just want to make art. But then we have to figure out like, well, you have to market. You can't just write all day. You have to find a way to do, to get, present your work or you're like, you're just going to be in your lab all day. <laughs> Correct. And this is a good reminder from a good mentor of mine. He's the owner and head of Rock Rage Radio, incidentally. His name is John Coons. He's a very close friend of mine and someone in our family who hold high esteem. And he used to tell the artists I'd bring in under my brand, Sonic Octane, he'd say, hey, look, you could be the most talented artist today because you've got all that software right at your desktop. It's prosumer grade, awesome, universal audio. You've got Moogs in your studio as an example as well, which is incredible. And the challenge part is how are you going to market yourself? Like what initiative do you take to get yourself out there and be a known entity in whatever realm it is that you're creating in? So I couldn't agree more. And I was very blessed 
to have a little bit more of a creative and business mindset coming into this because, man, if I listen to everything you see online, you would almost think I'd market myself on Spotify or YouTube and I'd be a rock star. But that's really not the way of the artist today, in my humble opinion. It's mm -hmm. one of a few approaches, but it's not really the secret in the sauce. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of, I, I still, what I found is like, I, I'm a, I'm a really good, I'm a musician, I'm a producer, but I'm actually doing very well as a podcaster. And then I said, well, you know what, that's a way to get my brand out there. Cause then people find out about my podcast and then they naturally go into my music and say, oh, he does music too. Yeah. And what I run into is I get deals where I end up working with other artists. I produce other people's records. I end up playing on other people's records. I get opportunities to do stuff. And so those opportunities might not put me in the top 10 or top 20 or top 100, but I get able, I'm able to do things. And it's right. maybe a different measurement because I'm, I'm, I'm doing different type of creative work. Um, but you still get out there. And as long as you find a way to get, you know, into what you love to do. And why, I mean, I've been doing music since I was 17. And I wow. did it because I love it. Not because I was trying to be the next big thing, but I just do it because I'm a musician. And right. I just like it. And then right. I found a way to get into podcasting. I kind of feel like some people in podcasting, they only last like 12 episodes. Right. Because then they, they're like, oh, well, it does it didn't it didn't catch fire. You know, I'm at, I'm at 861 episodes. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's like an anthology of awesome. And so much you've learned along the way and the people you meet. Like, honestly, like, it, it's so funny when I look back on the corporate side of my career and I go, how did I do all that? Like, I know there were some sleepless nights in there, believe me, dozens of them. And, you know, there are a lot of people that were in the top 10 percentage that were absolutely of that cloth. Like, they worked their tails off. And I have great respect for them to this day. Yet there was more to it. And number one, I think of are all the names of people that I've met along the way. And it's certainly in music. It's absolutely no different. It's not only who you know, it's how you work with them to add value to them too, right? So that's that's a big learning. And I think a lot of artists, they get trapped. You know, you get trapped in, oh, let me, I've got to market on Instagram and I got to figure that out. Oh, I've got to go figure out title because they have a better royalty rate and they have a little bit of artist tour support if I'm in the top of their pecking order or let me go to YouTube and do a bunch of keyword advice because well that's where a lot of artists have broken right so I'm just going to follow in those footsteps and you get trapped you get trapped in literally months and months of trying to figure out how do I get my brand and my music out there on each of these platforms and it's maddening so I took it a little bit differently and so I, I came from a business background and I said you know if I were to even try to place my stuff in any of those realms, my per spin rate is going to be very, very low. And I also own and operate separately a tour bus company. And my artists at the time, they wanted to hit the road. They wanted to go tour to New York and come back to Denver, where we're based out of. So I knew my multiple needed to be in the thousands, like several thousands, to do something like that. And ultimately, I found an independent filmmaker. And that independent filmmaker was willing, by God's grace, to take a baby brand of ours at the time. We were just off syndicated television in an interview out of New York, and she thought we were good enough, right? We weren't hot artists. We were good enough. And we were humble. And she put us on her miniseries that had five episodes with a bunch of, like, absolutely talented actors and actresses. And ultimately, our brand got exposed as a title track in that miniseries. She was even kind enough to put us on the front end of the, each episode and also on the back end. So two different oh, derivative yeah. works of the same song. Mm -hmm. That led to daytime Emmy submission. That was the first thing ever. And over 30 million song plays because of that relationship. And I didn't have to spend a dime on Spotify, which was awesome because, you know, you spend a dime, you get back a fraction of a penny anyhow. Yeah, yeah, you don't get anything. <laughs> so, Fair. you know, it's like a, it's like like a lot winning a lottery, like like the chances of you putting a lot of money into it and actually getting anything out of it. You know, I see an artist, oh, they're happy they got 30,000 plays. Well, you got like 15 bucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you got to get millions of plays, hundreds of millions of plays to make anything. You know, always yeah. says this, and this is where my hallmark in keynote speaking is really shining right now. And I'm just in the process of booking my calendar for the remainder of 2023. 
So your audience knows they can hire me to not only keynote and, and kind of punt these concepts, but to drill down because I've done it in corporations to the tune of a quarter billion dollars to two Fortune 100s. And now I'm doing it kicking ass in the music industry. And here's the bottom line. Leverage your creativity for your competitive advantage. And when I was sitting as an engineer years ago in Philadelphia, I was just a top salesperson nationwide two years earlier. I'm now sitting in Philly and I'm looking at companies like AT&T in our own backyard kicking our tails. And I had to study them. I had to study their cost model. I had to study how does one design a campaign using TerraSQL data and USAC codes and billing and provisioning systems and all this stuff. And that was all creativity. That was tapping into something engineers never do. They never go into campaign design and uh, request for proposal and uh, regulatory compliance checklists and all these weird things that I was exposing myself into just to know how to improve the game, including my skill set. And ultimately, that led to that particular team, and it happens to be on my LinkedIn profile, you know, somewhere in my engineering tenure, you'll see it there. The team was mm -hmm. at like 40 plus percent of their goal by April that year when I was assigned to support that team. And all this custom campaign stuff led to over 150, 160% of their goal by end of year. It was just innovative stuff. It was going to the well, humbly asking the good Lord to say, show me a little more of the way and bring some good people around me to cross train me and teach me about campaign concepts. So at Verizon, that happened to be Marilyn Curl at the time. And I had a lot of support from the field sales manager, Jim Bowers. And that led to that success. We campaigned in Pittsburgh, Newark, Philadelphia. We were piloting the whole concept of that. That led to even better things in that intelligence career to over $100 million of direct contribution through competitive research and leveraging that nationwide. So I would always say, whether you're in a creative realm and you're looking for a way to innovate and get a little bit better of a multiple on your earnings, go to independent filmmakers. Think outside yeah. the box. Don't necessarily run to Spotify to give you the marketing solutions that may or may not work so well. And certainly in corporate environments, I can train very similarly. Look at your campaign range of opportunities and look at the competition very carefully and research it well because that can lead to amazing things. Yeah, because the opportunities are really like in sync licensing. I've been looking at like video games. Uh, we actually did license a bunch of our music for uh, for Twitch through BMI. Um, and yeah. so there's like a lot of stuff where we can do because that's where you you know you could if you go and instead of just you know going after the gamers and trying to slam them for using your stuff, actually got with this company that actually licenses music right. for gamers so they can do it without getting in trouble. Correct. And Correct. so then that was able to get a higher rate than what Spotify does for the songs that I have licensed for that. And then the same thing goes with like getting this stuff licensed into video games yeah. or you can, you can run soundtracks for video games, like a film, you right. can score video game, like a film, you actually get video game producers to send you their game and you're actually watching it and scoring it. Like you would do a film. See, that just that's, fascinating. that's the way they are. <laughs> that is fascinating. You see what I mean? You've just unlocked an ingredient for your audience. That is absolutely amazing. Like I, <laughs> with all due respect, my genre, Let's say it's a little bit more behind the times. They're not typically executive MBA level educated. They're not typically coming from corporate environments. I've done the best that I can do. And I'm just one human being, obviously, very humbly. Here's a great example where rock in my genre can learn from you, right? God's truth is Sonic Octane, my band's brand. We had a friend in Austin that put us in his video game. But God bless him. He just has no concept of what you just shared. Like if he had known that as an app developer, he could go to BMI, find maybe Harry Fox agency that would license or sub-license this. And maybe there would be a range of opportunities that would come his way, whose multiple would be above what absolutely he would be earning on digital radio today as an example. And going mm -hmm. through sound exchange twice a year to get the few dollars at the bottom of the well, if you know what I mean. So mm -hmm. credit to you. I think this is, again, why I feel there's providence in us coming together today because I'm sure those folks in your audience that are either in a, let's say, a business domain that are looking to up their game and compete to win, whether they're in a creative environment and they're looking to leverage that creativity advantage to their win factor, it's all the same thread. It's just a different approach. 
Yeah, there's a lot of parallels because I'm a you know, I'm an art designer, but but also like when you know again to electronic music, I kind of look at it, and you know you, a lot of the, the heroes I looked at like Kraftwerk or you know Yellow Magic Orchestra. There's a, something technical about like synthesizers, right? So right. it's not then not that like like a guitar. Like we're actually building sound waves, taking sine waves and running them through subtractive synthesis or whatever. We get into like the theories of Buchla and Mo Dr. Robert Moog, and we're like, wow, like are we musicians? Are we scientists? We're kind of merging science and art, That's and it's, in its in itself, it's a different type of art that does lend itself to. The uh, like you know doing doing soundtracks or yeah. doing game soundtracks or doing ad soundtracks because that's kind of what you do because a lot of what we do is you know we can do hours and hours of music or or you know tiny bits of music like thirty seconds or sixty seconds or a minute or just for a scene you know and 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 when you look at the fact that you could go to independent filmmakers could go the guys coming out of Berkeley, coming out of these small film schools, the New York film school, and they're looking for something and say, hey, you know, I'll go and score it just just to give you a, tr a try with a brand new director. Correct. That's, that, you know, you, you just to get your name out there, because once you get your name, the way the game is, once somebody, you score something, then you tend to get more work. That's the funny thing. That's exactly right. And so Sonic Octane started as a brand concept in the fall of 2016. That I did some pre-work on, obviously, to bring that in. We did independent filming with the University of Colorado Film School, third-year students that were graduating in the spring. They loved the idea of renting a raceway. And Sonic Octane having speed and Americana and engineering, obviously, is part of the mix. That mm. led to all the good things. And then when we met up with this independent film producer, two years later, mind you, after the, all that pre-work had been done, that led to the opportunity for her to agree to allow us to be a part of her miniseries that led to 30 million song plays, incidentally, that led to a, a filming opportunity. Now, this is a cool thing that you may not always hear about Sonic Octane or Robbie Phoenix, the brand that led some of this effort as part of a team. We filmed on top of Mandalay Bay after the unfortunate massacre that happened there, the Harvest oh, yeah. Music Festival massacre. Now, this is the top of Mandalay Bay at the exclusive VIP only member only foundation room. So it was all this unbelievably beautiful, ornate architecture, history, the members that are part of that experience, like JLo, all the top mm -hmm. artists you could imagine that come through Las Vegas. And in particular, those that are retained by Live Nation, my little band. <laughs> that could that spent four months planning by the way i still have one of the planning memorandums here from months before we ever got into the door of the place with a 5 30 a.m casting call we're given the opportunity to partner with live nation to film there and so what i would say is we've released one song and we're soon later this year to release several songs one of those songs we released through sony the order Oh, you froze a little bit. What happened there? Your computer froze. I don't know what happened. So I'll, I'll see if well, I can back. restate this back. Yeah, back. So yeah, back. our little humble band that could, Sonic Octane, was selected by Live Nation to film at the exclusive foundation room in Las Vegas. So with that, we have released one audio so far in partnership with Curtain Call Records and Rock Rage Radio that was released through a major, through Sony The Orchard. And it's called, a song title called The Reckoning. And at the end of the day, we filmed to kind of celebrate the right questions we should be asking in America, which is what are the underlying causes or underpinnings of violence mm. in America? And we're not saying, we're not putting a color on it. We're not mm. putting a, a geography on it. We're not putting our politics on it. We're just, we're artists. We're, we're just asking the questions. And again, Live Nations selected us to be the, the messenger of that. And we're really proud of that particular work. And that led to even better things in our future ahead. So the reckoning, so that, that's um that that's coming out. Yeah, or it's available today on digital release through Sony the Orchard, or you can okay. find it on Facebook or Spotify today. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's awesome. So, so how long did that take to put that together? Well, interestingly enough, so you kind of see some studio infrastructure behind you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the music <laughs> itself was cut here. So I did all the drum, all the bass, all the guitar work. 
I had another colleague help me with some of the keyboard, which was kind of a plug-in inside of our DAW with some mm -hmm. uh, you know, drop insert type loops. And then ultimately we had a separate level or workflow that cleaned up our demo audio here in the studio. And that was through Curtain Call Records. And that ultimately was released through Sony The Orchard. So that's generally the overview of the workflow. That's cool. So you have your home studio, you have like your bedroom producer studio, and then you're able to, to put it into your DAW and get it out there. But you're, yeah, so you got your plug-in. Let's say you got the real guitars. You, you <laughs> got, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm primarily a keyboardist, but I see a lot of your gear. Yeah, and I see your all your racks and your plugins and your yeah you got some you got some neve stuff there <laughs> yeah <laughs> we got neve. we've got some stuff from uh well this is this is a british russian oh. american just from all over the place we've got tour gear for stadiums and uh awesome. i'll say that you know it's a full pre-production rehearsal facility so behind me here you can see a obviously full drum set yeah full, yeah the you yeah. know you got the whole thing there. You got what the dream, well, yeah, the dream. Yeah, I'm just, I'm a synthesis, so I just have tons of, tons of boards, you know, but um, I do have a couple of Russian preamps and things I, I, I got into. But uh, yeah, it's like, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm kind of a hybrid guy. I kind of got out of um, DAWs and I do everything with multi-tracks. Wow. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of stuff directly in the multi-tracks because I like to capture my Moogs and my modular stuff directly. Wow. And then I, I I might treat them with uh with like my some of my Russian preamps, my analog preamp stuff. But Ooh. yeah, it's just it's, it's just a point. I I, I kind of like I grew up with like Funkadelic, and uh, you know bands like Yes and uh, Yes. Oh and, my god, Peter kidding. Peter Gabriel Genesis. So I you know oh. my songs are like oh. six seven eight minutes long. Dude, so I mean, I, or not, when you go to our Twitter, <laughs> and I know you'll be sharing this after the podcast, our Twitter's at Sonic Band Fan. And as you go out there, mm -hmm. you'll see that the band Yes follows my band, man. It's like, oh, that's cool, we, dude. Yeah, it's I love it's unbelievable. Rick Wakeman's like he's one of the guys, you know, between like Emerson Lake and Palmer with Rick Wakeman. I'm always I'm always followed, you know. I, I, I follow a lot of jazz, man. I listen to Sun Ra, I listen to Davis, I listen to Coltrane. Um, Real deal. No wonder you're a producer. That makes perfect sense. Well, I just like, I like, the, I've been playing since I was 17. I, I started on like Tascams and Fostex. And yeah. then when the Dawes came, I said, I still like the Tascam Fostex stuff. So I still stayed with like Tascam and Zoom. And I just decided to stay with like hardware recorders. I did yeah. move to like my one modern thing I have is like an Akai Force. Nice. But I still, but I still link it to a, to a hardware, um, like, like multi-track. It so I'll go and find it exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then I would link. Then I would link a, like a Mo grandmother through CV into yeah. it and, and and use the real Moog instead of the plugin. I actually right. go CV the my own plugin. <laughs> Dude, <you gotta laughs> have write. my Moog come in. <laughs> I'm officially popping the cork. We should absolutely collaborate because you see, I've got a wall of boutique. Like they're truly one of a kind. I didn't get into all the detail of like this. Yeah, 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 that's a cool stuff there. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it. they're all yeah. class A and limited run and all that kind of stuff. But I would love yeah, to get the cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm a very experimental. I mean, I'm kind of like my, you know, I've been listening to like you know, like spaces the place and and uh, you know, jazz and silhouette like Sun Ra. I've been really vibing on Sun Ra lately, and then Weather Report because uh, Wayne Shorter. I've been going back and listening to Weather Report a lot. Weather Report, um, Jacko Pistorius? Are you kidding me? Yeah, Jacko. Yeah, Jacko Dude. is just fantastic. Oh my I God. mean, I was a former bassist. So going back a little bit on Robbie Phoenix's history, and I'm probably going back a little too far. I hope not for your audience. But I started as a bass player, and I literally picked up – well, I started with the basics, you know, Rolling Stones, early mm -hmm. Who stuff. Then I mm -hmm. put it into high gear, and I started playing like Bob Daisley from Ozzy Osbourne. Because mm. the first two albums from Ozzy were like poetry, the way he would play like Goodbye to Romance, for example. Mm -hmm. Then I got heavy into Led Zeppelin. So John Paul Jones, a.k.a. John Baldwin. Yeah, John Baldwin. Yeah, Jones. He's, he's awesome. I like his keyboard work, too. Oh like if you God. listen to a lot of Zeppelin stuff, he's an underrated keyboardist. Just like Townsend is an underrated keyboardist for the stuff he did with the ARP 2500 and the 2600. Yeah, um, yeah. Who are you? He's no an envelope kidding. follower and stuff like that. Listen like to he that. was, yeah, yeah, totally. Bob O'Reilly. I mean, really? to me, 
he's in the keyboard magazines all the time. Like a lot of people don't realize, like synthesis actually respect Pete a lot for what he used to do when you listen to like Who Are You or Relay Correct. or any of those songs what he did with the R2500 and uh, the 2600 running through the envelope follower. He would take his yeah. guitar and then run it through the envelope follower and do this really interesting manipulation of his guitar and, through the ARP. And but, what uh, you just said there catches my ear a little bit. And I have to ask you this because I'm dying, actually dying to know this. I hope your audience is. Now, I know about envelope filters as a basis, right? Because, you know, Stanley mm -hmm. Clark used them and Chris Squire to some extent. But tell me, like Tempest Fuji, it sounds to me more like an envelope filter than a flanger. But mm -hmm. you said follower. Is that something to do with time? It, yeah, the envelope follower is a unique circuit within the ARP 2500, 2600 synthesizer. And it's like, it's not, you don't really see it on modes. I mean, some of the big modular modes might have had it, but it was a unique design element of the ARP 2600 and Pete kind of kind of got into it where he found that when he plugged his guitar into it, he treated it like a pedal. So yeah. he treated that whole synth workflow as a pedal and the envelope follower allowed him to actually bring his guitar as the input instead of a keyboard. And, and then it actually creates like up and down modulation. If you take a, like a square wave, it will create a modulation point on the envelope follower. So it follows like the signal coming in. And yeah. then it creates like what you hear on a song like Relay or Who Are You? And yeah. you think that's all synth, but it's actually him taking the guitar and running it through that and then creating oh that kind of modulation point, which he was very unique. And then, he, you know, yeah, like you have Andy Van Halen with the Oberheim. The way right. he did the chords is more like an approach of a guitar player and playing chords. And that's why jump sounds the way it does. Because I always found it when a, key, a, a guitar player hits a synth, they come in with a different mindset and right. they approach it in a different way. Like like Pete's modulations on, on who songs are not what Keith, Keith Emerson or Rick Wakeman would do. Right. They wouldn't even think like that. No, they no, don't no. even think that way. And so I always thought it's really interesting when you see a guy like Eddie and Pete approach the, the scent, they, they came at it in a different way and you get a totally different world. I, I think I'm, my head is almost blown off. Like literally, you're you're super impressive. Now I'm not even just gonna ask. I'm gonna I'm gonna demand <laughs> as if I'm gonna demand on your show. But I am so impressed. Genuinely, I would be honored to work with you this year at some point when you feel it's appropriate. Just to I mean, I attack guitar. Like I'm a bassist, so when I play guitar, mm -hmm. it's like Dave Grohl. It's like it becomes splinters by the time yeah, I'm done bleeding. But yeah, at the like end that. of the day. Oh, believe me when I tell you, I bring it, and 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 I've got a whole bunch of new music that I'm starting to work on, and I'll I'll just send you some riffs. Maybe you can make something much better of it. Anyhow, that's how I yeah, see. Yeah, it's it. always cool to run something into a Moog. Like I have a real spring reverb inside my Moog grandmother. It's a oh. physical spring re re reverb, and if you run a guitar into it, you can affect it. And then I like what it is called playing the controls, right? So a lot of what I do is I'll put the tape on. And and I want a signal through my Moog and actually, uh, as part of the performance, use the control surface of the Moog from left to right, using it to like, you know, overdrive the CP3 mixer or play with the with the envelope um, generator to get it to be really plucky, get it to be more sustained. And then you actually use it as a performance aspect, like a jazz guy, like, like a fusion player. And That's if you do point. that, you can get very unique kind of point in time sound painting type of experiments. And that's what I'm about. That's why I call my stuff expansive sound experiments, because I spend a lot of time with my analog and modular sense trying to do things that are very point in time. And then I put them down on multi-tracks and then I can reuse them and I can loop them. But I like yeah. to create original kind of sound painting, Frank Floyd kind of old school, yes, Genesis type of, that's oh, where my, my head's at. God. That's what I that's what I do. Dude, that's what I grew up on, bro. Like, I literally, I'm not kidding you. Like, <laughs> Pink Floyd, The Wall, Shine On You, Crazy Diamond, War Pigs. Just, yeah. I, I could go on and on with All songs to me. Oh, my, oh, Live at Pompeii. I mean, Jesus, listen to yeah. that organ. A, it's not I just love a lesson. I listen to it. Yeah, animals, animals and Wish You Were Here. I, I, like, I, I, I love all Pink Floyd stuff because they're so expansive. The stuff they used to do with the EMC 3C3, the MS 3C3 was what the synth that they used primarily. 
and it's very unique to their sound. You can hear on Dark Side, the EMS VC3. But right. at a very unique extent, they had like a peg kind of battleship modulation point instead of controlled voltage. So it was big modulation matrix that you could put pegs in to complete the circuit rather than CV wires. And it, it has a different sound of everything. It doesn't sound like anything else. Like, see, this, that's why this, they sound kind of unique. <laughs> this reminds me a little bit as a guitarist. I've read interviews of Eddie Van Halen, and I met. I had a privilege to meet Eddie Van Halen at the Smithsonian in D.C. Oh, wow. a number of years Eddie. ago. And I met Slash and a bunch of these cats because they're all my role models. Like, I love these mm. guys through and through for what they did for music and just the leadership within the realm of guitar and songwriting. So I remember one of the interview articles I read of Eddie before having met him because I was trying to do my homework to show him that I cared. Mm. And, and it was all about voltage, bro. It's all about playing with the voltage plates and very yeah. in front of his Marshall. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, well, yeah, you can do a lot. I mean, the edge does a lot. Like he actually treats his guitar kind of like a synthesis, like a modular synthesis. If you ever seen the 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 movie, like he does very simple patterns on his guitar, but he runs them through this big stack of modulation points, kind of like a modular synthesis. Yep. Sometimes, like the original notes are very simple, but what you end up doing with your synthesis type of mindset is that you can multiply or invert or change you know a lot of what we do is like i use like attend verters like uh-huh. on modes attend verters can go positive and negative so they That's can like, warp bad. stuff and i've got all kinds of things i like to warp things i use like a modular sampler that actually modulates points in time and actually com- it takes like points of the song and mixes them together so we I can see. take like the beginning put it into the middle, the middle to the end, all simultaneously. Like almost like a tape delay old style, like Jimmy It's Pace. like a warping thing. It's, called, it's, a, it's a warper and it warps things. So it becomes unrecognizable. I, but I like to actually go into sample a Moog and then warp Ooh. it. You're such Rather a nice than sample, than sample in somebody else's song, oh, I'll sample a synth. Oh, and then you were <laughs> blowing my mind. And I thought, I thought I had something to offer. No, uh-uh. Like, dude. We got to definitely collaborate. And I'll tell you what, there's a sound I'll flip to you later just for fun. It's from the edge. It's mm-hmm. off of pop CD. There's a certain guitar sound. I've been dying to understand how he did it. Oh, what he did. Yeah. He's yeah. Very interesting. He, he has some very, when you actually deconstruct it, a lot of stuff is very simple playing patterns. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. complicated at all. Yeah. It's yeah. what he's able to do with all the layers of uh, reverbs and, delays and and you know he does a lot of things beyond delays and reverbs he does things that are really deconstructing the sound and kind of flipping it like a filter you know flipping yeah. it like like an envelope follower he seems to do a lot of that mm. um but uh yeah he's a very he's very i was always very interested in what he did with brian eno on, oh. on unforgettable fire right. unforgettable fire exactly yeah because some some people like like i did some stuff that that this label uh they had, I think Eno was the consultant on it, and they liked some of the stuff I was doing because it was reminding them of Eno experiments. Because I'm like my head jam. I love the stuff that Eno did with Dylan. Oh, um, big time! And I, I like his kind of. He does these kind of sound washes, where yeah. they kind of get washed out. But then there's like a lot of like I don't know. There's there's different harmonics in it, and uh, it's like the multiple schools of thought and synthesis. There's like the Buchla school that's like uh, basically. Uh, when you're thinking about additive synthesis based on sine waves, yeah. and then you have this subtractive synthesis that Dr. Robert Moe came up with. There's most synthesizer guys use subtractive. Right. Right. That's right. like from the Jupiter 8 to the Oberheim to all the Roland Junos. That's all subtractive. Yeah. But when you get to Buchla stuff, then it starts getting into like very interesting harmonics all coming off of sine waves. You're, and you're sine waves me. create totally different weird sounds for you. You can use some soundtracks and stuff, but it's it's not normally used for pop. It's like a treatment on top of a pop song or or something yeah. like Terminator soundtrack. <laughs> I'm actually starting to work with a couple of amazing people. I was invited to their home several years ago volunteering for homeless. Like I would volunteer because of a gentleman named Bob Golden, who mm. and his wife were kind enough to tune me in to the needs of the, some of the community in Las Vegas. So I was driving between LA and the Denver area where I live and they would pull me into these volunteer things. And so sure enough, there was a house party one evening 
And again, they're just being kind to connect me to people in the city. And so several years later now, seven plus years later, I actually have the opportunity to work with this husband-wife songwriting team. They're multi-Grammy award-winning. Wow. They have their own brand that is killing it, man. They're really good. And so I, I think this will be a very creative year overall. And I'd be excited to work with you. When you were sharing earlier about the synthesis and subtraction, I was thinking about the Digitech whammy pedal. I'm sure you're familiar <laughs> with that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. About you two song uh, discotech because the guitar oh, and yeah, yeah. the, yeah. the ping delay, it's also got all this other just harmonics in the uh, second and third and fourth rep repetitions that are very unique. Yeah, the edges are so interesting because he kind of like he didn't he kind of taught himself. And it's one of these kind of things like you know Hendrix Hendrix taught himself, and you know when you find a guy that actually kind of. Man, Pete didn't really know since he just went and got a bunch of modulars. Right. A bunch of, he went and got like the ARP 2500 right. and 2600. 2500 is like a big modular. And right. uh, he just started playing with it. And I, when I, that's what happened when I got mine. I just actually just got it. And I had just been playing like piano and regular board stuff. And then I got into sense. And I was like, wow. Actually, when you have the permission to actually you know, play with it like a scientist. And you're like, well, why does the square wave sound like this? And why does the sine wave sound like that? Then right. you start to realize what you can do. And, you know, I spend so much time on sound design before I even write a song. Wow. Because right. I, I, like, I like to build the weight, my, my, my tones. I build right. all my tones from scratch without doing plugins. I build my bass drums and my, oh. all my drums off a of Moog drum machine. It's analog, brother. That's like yeah, the best sound ever. Well, Wait, I use a Moog drum machine, which actually they have a thing called a DFAM, drummer from another mother. And Whoa. it actually allows you to build from square and triangle waves your own drums. Gosh. And then you, and then it's kind of like an 808, but it's actually, I mean, it's a Moog, they're Moog oscillators. You got two Moog oscillators that allowed you to build. Now, it's very limited. It only has eight steps. No MIDI. It's all yep. CV. Yeah. But. But what I do is I, I'll go and put something down and put it into a sampler. So oh, I'll put like man. Four on the floor, and then I'll go and then do another beat over it and do the hi-hats, but they're custom hi-hats I built. And you can just build everything with it and then start tracking it. So if you have a multi-track, you just start tracking the drums, you know, track two and, and four, two and one and two, and then three and four, and you just keep on tracking it. Well, you know and what? then you end up having original beats that you don't end up getting copyright violations because you went and created it yourself. Of course, definitely <laughs> true. And in the digital realm, I, I find myself having to do that, obviously. So in the benefit of a, a studio, this is a demo studio. Obviously, it's not a commercial grade facility, certainly. However, I know that loops are loops. And I know that drum patterns are somewhat unique. You, you may want to add accents or flams. Well, mm -hmm. let's get back to the thing you said earlier. Like, I recall seeing a documentary, I believe it was on Netflix, about the 808. And oh, if, yeah. I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, was this also the same device that 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 our beloved, dearly departed Prince, the, the artist oh. formerly known as, used in Purple Rain for When Doves Cry and Purple Rain? Well, I think he was using the Lin LM1, mm. um, which at the Lin LM1, but he did use 808s. There are some songs he did 808s, he used like D50 Rolling Sense, like mm -hmm. I Love Sexy. But yeah, the Lin, uh, like LM1 and LM2s, he was really into those. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because he wouldn't, you know, use a bass line on When Doves Cry. There actually is a version of it that has the bass. Whoa. And Prince actually made, actually, Warner Brothers didn't want it uh, without the bass, but he kind of pushed and says it actually sounds better without the bass. Right. And Prince, you know, has so many variations, as I'm told Prince said, where he yes. would do so many different versions of a song like Hendrix. And you have so many different uh, versions. Most of them go out like 12 minutes. Right. They go out right. really long. And then they get cut down. And then that, the, the thing about that, that when Doves Cry, the one with the bass line, it's too busy. And when you actually pull the bass line out of it, then you actually hear the core of what it is. And it's like, wow. Right. A lot of his songs are like that. There's stuff from Sign of the Times that had layers in it. And when he actually released it, those layers were pulled out. And we, wow. what he found was... A lot of his style was like pulling things out was actually the thing that did it. For most of his great songs is when he pulled out the layers. 
right. and left it more like a demo. Well, you know, it's interesting. It end up going through better. <laughs> it goes better. It's like, again, back to that concept of orchestra. I was mentioning earlier a little bit of alluding to in corporate environments. I mean, you've got layers and layers of functions, teams, people. And, and I'll tell you what, man, intelligence functions live and breathe based on these dynamics directly in business. And I think people don't always see that. Like mm -hmm. leaders, some are a little more creative and visionary, let's say. And some are very, like, let's say Wharton. They're very, and not to pick on Wharton, is it, but just as an example, they're like, I have an executive MBA. I know how people think in those circles. And I, I have that education over two years of being in class to know that companies like Big Pharma, financial services, I could go on and on. But even the dozens and dozens of senior executives I have directly served and supported humbly, they don't always have the mindset. They don't always have the experience even to go. Like what you're doing in music is very similar in alchemy to what I did in corporate environments. So if you've got a campaign concept, you got to validate it. You can't just say, hey, this is cool. These are some uh, circuit IDs and provisioning codes that will sell or upsell. You got to go external and research it and know if it's going to fly because Comcast is there, AT&T, fill in the blank, mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft, Google, and you've got to know how they play their game. And, and yeah. you got to know it really well. So I appreciate what you're saying. This is so cool that you're yeah. in that universe. There's a lot of synergy between what you're saying, because like, you know, I do software development and we do like, you know, whether we're going to do it with agile or waterfall, we end up dealing with a lot of in my line of business, I deal with a lot of insurance companies and banks. They're stuck in, uh, you know, on VCM and DB2 COBOL systems. Wow. Like, and we move them to maybe Oracle systems and we try to get them into, you know, uh, AWS and we try to get them to blockchain. But a lot of times they're still living on DB2 with with maybe a Java front end. That's yep. what, what that's their capability. And yep. so we we try to deal with that. And, and it, there's a lot of art and science to it because some of those old school systems, kids don't even know COBOL. You know, so so they have no idea what what to do, and I'm kind of a child of the '70s, so I kind of grew up with COBOL. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of art to it. What I find it like in in what you can do and what you in the limitations of of the memory back then, and in the kind of elegance of the code. Correct. And then being a being an artist, and then looking at some of the elegant code from the '70s and the '80s, you're like, wow, the way they had to deal with it. With, when they don't have all this RAM and they don't have all this space, they were very elegant. And it's like, you can actually learn from that. Right. right. I always try to tell some of the people, like some of that, like when you're forced with limitations, then you have to get more creative. And and then when you have a wide open, like where you can just write all the code you want, right? then you can get sloppy. <laughs> well, this is the weird thing. Like, I mean, I know you've probably seen the memes like I have on social media, like Facebook, you know, they brought men to the freaking moon with a computer that it was less than the power of our cell phones, surely. Yeah, the code was elegant. Yeah, the code was, was elegant. You know, if you think about it, yeah, it's like really awesome. And the trigonometry and the calculus and the yeah. geometry that was required to come up with those formulae, right? And then they had to mm -hmm. put it in code and validate and test and deploy and then test again and refine. So it's very interesting to me because I know even in campaign design, like when I started in telecom and gosh, this is going back a ways, but I recognized that it was a certain elegance to the old school architecture and code because, hey, you can merge with as many companies as you want. And the wrapper up here in the, let's say the layer seven OSI model stack where the applications play, yeah. let's say, but there's also a lot of commonalities in layers four through six. And the key there is learning the relational structure and learning how to make them all handshake in a way that's productive, right? Mm -hmm. So building yeah. custom servers, or if you're going to go in and have to stitch together what was already there in a data mart, uh, yeah. you just got to get really elegant about how you stitch that together like a little quilt. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we end up doing a lot of data warehouses where the source is still coming DB2 VCM. Right. right. And then... It might go to a data lake and then maybe it go into blockchain or you know on the very top top. But the cool. bottom 
a lot of times is DB2 V the main Oracle, maybe server, but a lot of this stuff in the in the insurance industry is, is stuck in in COBOL. And uh and people will be surprised. There's a lot of big name companies. I won't go on Vivera, but they're still using, <laughs> yeah. even after Y2K, they're still using Cola. <laughs> you know, it's funny you share about that. Last year, I only was tangentially connected to this particular project in a private company. So I, I can only share so much. But I will say that I remember distinctly the question around, what about financial services versus insurance industry in adopting quantum? Because... Clearly, financial services went out of their way to try to be the early adopter. What learnings or parables can we learn from the pluses and minuses of that as we look into the insurance industry and the way in which they design their architecture and how we should be resourcing and deploying? And there's there's a lot of learning in that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of insurance companies trying to jump, but they're still in 1968-70 type technology. Most of them are still heavily involved with large blocks that are business and that. And, you know, it, you know, maybe for the smartphones, they're using something that might be blockchain or AWS, but the core yeah. data sure, is still living in the seventies or the late sixties. <laughs> <Welcome to school, laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's me, it is, but then my modes are kind of, they're from the late sixties or late fifties. They're awesome. Well, you know, when you I know? started in sales, the, the, the uh, CRM that they had was based in IBM SNA mainframe. And yeah. I just remember thinking, like, yes, it's kind of old school, but boy, was it fast. Like, any query you put in came back. Yeah, like, yeah. Man, old mainframes are fast. I mean, I mean maybe today the things are faster. But, but you know, I, I mean, I grew up, you know, working with these these things, you know, working with these old, you know, VCM files. But, you know, we had to know SQL. You know, even today, the skill set of being more technical to, to actually run my own queries. You know, I can get dangerous with my queries, you know, store procedure level stuff. But, you know, <laughs> it, it's um, it's kind of cool to be in that world because it's like, I like having, you know, I like to take things apart. I'm the kind of kid yes. that, that that was making video games on a Texas Instrument computer with sprite graphics back in the day, you know, 78, that's so 79, cool. that's what I was doing. And so it's not unsurprising that I got to where I am because that's where my head was at. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sociology government major. Wow. I like to do computers. I took no comp sci at all. Wow. But I've been in the in the computer industry within IT, within you know, financial services and insurance since 1993. Well, time out. We gotta ask this humble question because I think <laughs> you and I have a lot in common in this point in particular. So you did not choose to take a formal education in your passion, true or false? Well, yeah, I mean, I have a liberal arts degree, but not for what I do. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it become, I became what we call a business system analyst. So I'm kind of the, the, the in-between, but I'm technical enough that I can get into SQL and I can get into Python and I can get all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. But, but the fact is, I, I was curious. And what I, what I think I took is the Socratic method. Yeah. So I went to Bowdoin, right? So the idea of having this kind of holistic mindset that you mm -hmm. always learn, right? Yes. That I can write research papers. I can go and look up stuff. I can make an argument. That I can, awesome. We had we had blue book tests. We didn't have tests where you're doing a, 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 a you know, just a, a, a choice. Yep. You're not just filling out like a grid, like an SAT. The professor wanted you to see if you understood what they had been teaching. You had a blue book exam. And if you pass the blue book, then you pass the course. And that's the way, you know, the kind of Socratic method to show that you could think on your feet. Right. And show that you can actually not just repeat the ideas, but actually make them your own. Right. And that's what I kind of do in, in my industry. I, I, I help design things. I'm, as an analyst, I get the requirement from, from the owner. Sure. And then I go figure out what it should be in a kind of a pseudo code, regardless of whatever computer language it should be, sure. figure out the logic, figure out what it should look like, and then we design it. You know, and then the programmers actually build it, but I actually kind of make make them honest and say, does it actually match the use case? Does right. it match the user story? Does it My, match the BRD? That's what I do. The business requirements development, right? And the it yeah. doesn't even fit in the SDLC 
cadence, let's say, because there's not always discipline with that in companies as I've learned over time. Oh, yeah. And they're not very disciplined. I mean, people want to say they're agile and half the time they're still waterfall. Right. And so they'll have a scrum session and they'll have black belts in there, but they still can't get it to a user story because it's, it's too many actuaries in the room and they've got like 100 pages of formulas. Right. And they don't, 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 they don't fit on cards. They don't fit. Right. So, and so I end up. Code, <laughs> yeah, have you ever seen the linear equation of Amazon's shopping experience online? Yeah, I think I've seen it a couple of times. <laughs> your, your guests on your, your, your the podcast can literally Google this. It's a Harvard Business Review case study from, I don't know, circa 2007, maybe. And like, dude, the thing is pages long. And if you take the time for a linear equation, uh, student that I was, I mean, my eyes were obviously popping out of my head, but at the end of the day, you realize the power of this, right? It's yeah, not it just is. line queuing theory and who gets in the shopping cart first and is tax uh, applied in a correct way or something. It, there's a whole series of logistics support behind what they do that is mm -hmm. part of the genius of their business in general, right? And so- yeah, I mean it's hard to put that just in the context diagram with a bunch of use cases or user stories and have this big epic. And, you know, some things that are simple can be right. put into that format. Right. But I deal with like, you know, hundred page product specs, right. you know, they, you know, 50 page product specs that with all these algorithms that, you know, go on for pages because, right. you know, death tables within insurance. You know, if you think yeah. about the factors and how we figure out how to price things and how those factors work against taxation, against the NASD, against the SEC, and then using this and that, you know, so you're doing all kinds Probably. of formulas just to keep something becoming a modified endowment, just right. to keep something becoming taxable. And then you have to cost of insurance and then you have to do like rate tables against all kinds of factors based yeah. on your health factors and run algorithms based on how do we price this based on all these medical facts, right. all these social media facts. And wow. then actuaries come up with all these kind of ways to figure out and predict how long you're going to live. Right. Right. <laughs> based on yeah. your behavior. And yeah. based on your social behavior, your medical sure. record, your financial record. And then they run formulas to try to figure out like, well, how long are you going to make it based on all this data? <laughs> well, I hope they have it figured out for all of us, right? Because at the end of the day, I'd like to know roughly how long I'm planning to live. Or at well, least they, they kind of predict it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like They're a massive profit. Try to make a profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like a massive multivariate analysis where they're, you know, trying to go with the uh, best probabilities is what it sounds like to me. But it's very fascinating. And certainly yeah. back to the, the corporate stuff of competing to win and me being the win factor keynote, like, Literally, if there are areas that businesses are ailing and they're looking for insight towards their solutions, or just practically speaking, if they're looking to stack up against their competition, and I know for a fact, financial services, insurance industry, big tech, where I sat for 23 years, every one of these leaders are scratching their heads wondering what is their win factor? How are they going to not only differentiate, but capitalize to win, seeing their top lines accretively grow? Over time, taking process improvements towards EBITDA, favorable EBITDA positions and OPEX synergies, I'm your guy. And by all means, it's been a pleasure with you today. That's been awesome having the opportunity to meet you and to know how your mind is wired. It's fascinating. It really is. Well, I want people to, for our audio audience, to know that we have a link here. They've had up through the whole show. There's a www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Robert ZS on a Z-E-A-S. And you want to go and click on that when we're fully published. And that will be your LinkedIn profile where you could, once you're in there, people will be able to direct message you and contact you about your services. Absolutely. I'd love the keynote. If you guys have executive retreats that you're looking for, an authoritative proven Fortune 100 business leader that specializes in strategic marketing and competitive intel, please reach out. I'm booking now my calendar through 2023. And if you'd like a side note, I've got a band. <laughs> so if you're looking for some music, I have a feeling our podcast host is going to be dossing in because I'd love to hear you play. Yeah, yeah. That's always cool. I mean, I think it's like, you know, music and culture is interesting because I started to try to weave this whole thing when I first uh, started to branch out from interviewing musicians. 
yeah. where I started. Well, how people said, well, how are you going to go from interviewing bands to interviewing influencers and uh, life coaches and mentors? And I said, well, you know what? You know, the Beatles were probably the biggest influencers ever. Ever. So you can weave the idea that they they make made all musicians and actors and all kinds of people want to get into creativity. Correct. Right? So the idea that you can't weave a story with music uh, and connect it to other things. I said, well, I think that's false because I, I, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> right. You've been doing it as a leader. What's That's what's fascinating to me is that the parallels that you and I are, I'm surprised we didn't grow up from the same mom in a way, right? Because you're so cool and, and pleasant to, to interact with. And I, I get similar feedback. And you're, it's not just that you're creative. It's that you're a, a level above the creative and you're applied in business and you're successful. And it's who you are. It's the very authentic you. And that's what I love about you, man. I'm really, really grateful to have met you. I hope that your, your audience will resonate with this message today. I am very much looking forward to updating you with successes along the way. I think that's great. I think what you offer to people is, is, is kind of like the holistic vision. Um, because I think having that creative mindset allows you to get to that. I believe that people who are creative, and I would hope business would would start to measure, and it's hard to measure a creative, and this is my, my challenge to business, is that when you have somebody that's a creative and you're trying to measure them on the scale and put them on that bell curve, sometimes you may have to really think about, because sometimes they drive away creatives right. because they're trying to put them in the box. Correct. And, and then businesses are looked at creativity and they force them out. And so it's like for business people to maybe listen to this, is to think that you know some of the creative people who are doing this out of the box stuff are hard, hard to measure in the bell curve. So if you really want to, you need to you need to think about other ways to capture creativity that you need in your business. And I believe you're bringing that to the table, and you'll you'll hire these people as outside consultants. But I think they need to have employees like that too. Right. Um, so I mean, that's, that's that's the key. Like, and I can say that from a position of true authority, having lived it. Like $254 million didn't just show up because some number of executives over 15 years of my senior advisory experience were on my A-team. It was a, a combination of creativity, tenacity, innovation, and just having the right good people around me to support the vision of what it was that creatively led to competitive advantage. So at the end of the day, 100%, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of opportunity with companies whose employees are probably like myself once upon a time, that we're sitting in quiet offices at night, or in some cases working remote, sitting in their home offices. And they have all these ideas, and they may not always have the leadership around them to make them feel accepted and supported, or may not have the inner strength to stand up on their own feet and say, hey, I've got an idea I'd like to task with an intern program. Or, hey, I've got an innovative, beautiful soup module that I'm running in SQL because I want to mine records uniquely. Or, hey, I have a campaign design that will kick our top competitors' ass, literally. Mm -hmm. And I'm the guy that will come in and liberate all of that creative energy inside of a company and help them win. And I promise you that. Well, I think that's what people need. They need to give people that kind of shot. And I, I'm glad that we're kind of speaking this. So I hope people who listen to that take it to heart and actually kind of look at how they're running their business and maybe start to open their eyes because they probably have people around them, people in their business that could give them what they need and they don't even know that they're there. Yeah. And so I think that's cool yeah. <laughs> that you're speaking to that. <laughs> I mean, believe me when I tell you I've been through as an intelligence lead that I was in two Fortune 200s or Fortune 100s, excuse me. And you get people that have these big, hefty budgets to go to like analyst firms. Or they go to third-party think tanks. And I won't mention names, but at the end of the day, we all know who they are. And yeah. they're spending millions of dollars a year for what? You've got people on your staff that will innovate for you, and there'll be a fraction of that cost. And you could run 20 of them at the same time for the same budget. And if just one of them, a top 5% or hits a win, you know. So you want to yeah, be it's a no-brainer, but right? it's like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you got to trust your people. Like, like believe in your people, and 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 then they will be believe in you, 
And then when you yes. build that trust relationship, then the creativity will start to be, uh, you know, apparent because it's there. And like every human being in my experience is creative and you just got to give them the right trigger to let it kind of bloom. And if you Correct. give it the right trigger, then you can get to the right place. And hiring somebody like you, yourself is like, is a, is a good start for an organization to realize, you know, they, they can have really awesome benefits if they trust and, and they take the guidance from somebody like what we're talking about for the last hour. That's it. And my mantra inside of my brand, Robbie Phoenix, is one love, one music, our world. And I, I live by it, literally. So whether you're in a company yep. and you're having to write the same sheet of music because you have a strategic plan that ties to an execution path that's usually sequential, quarterly focus and execution, you know, let's go from the same sheet of music, but let's let that creativity really flow. It's an authentic thing that's a differentiator you don't even know is under your lid sometimes. And I promise you, I've been in those meetings because I used to deliver intelligence briefings every two weeks in senior leadership functions from the chief marketing officer, chief executive officer on down. And I would be in those meetings where it was standing room only because they know here comes Robbie. He's got a different spin on how to compete to win. And I promise mm -hmm. you, I promise you, this is really worth your while. I promise you it will prove out on your top line revenue growth and it will scale to help even over time, your execution, your OPEX, and your EBITDA. And that's my word. And thank you for having me again. Well, thank you for being on the program and have a great night. I mean, it's a new, we're in New Hampshire, so it's like evening time. But we'll, 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 we'll definitely have this out to the rest of the world through uh, Spotify for Podcasters. It's going to be all the major platforms. We're going to give you a, a landing page for your audience, and they'll be able to get to it however they want. Awesome. So thank you very Sounds much. Sounds great. Okay. Have a great night. Take care.